0: Hey there, Brandon Harvey here. Before we get started, I just wanted to give a shout out to the sponsor of this week's episode, Who Gives a Crap? No, really though, that's the name of the company, Who Gives a Crap. Who Gives a Crap began when its Australian founders learned that 2.3 billion people across the world don't have access to a toilet. That's roughly 40% of the global population and means that around 289,000 children under 5 die every day from diarrheal diseases caused by poor water and sanitation. So they did what anyone would do in this situation and started a toilet paper company. Yes, that's what they did. Not only do they make all of their products with environmentally friendly materials, but they also donate 50% of their profits to help build toilets and improve sanitation in the developing world. Who Gives a Crap is offering Sounds Goods listeners $10 off their first order with the promo code SOUNDSGOOD. To get toilet paper delivered to your door, make a difference in the world, and support this podcast. Just go to who gives dot org slash sounds good and use the discount code soundsgood. All one word. One more time, that is who gives a slash sounds good with the discount code soundsgood. Who gives a crap? Good for your bum, great for the world. All right, now here comes the show. In an Instagram post from March 10th, Miles Adcox shared these words. Conflict and intimacy are two things I see men avoid the most. I did for years and worked hard to improve both professionally and relationally. We also struggle owning and addressing symptoms of stress, anxiety, and depression. It's not in our nation to admit flaws or any perceived weakness. The good news is that things are starting to change for the better. When I first read these words, they immediately hit home for me because I knew Miles was onto something, something that's missing in this conversation around the collective movement towards empathy. Miles Adcox has devoted his life to living into these three concepts, empathy over action, love over agenda, and grace over advice. Publicly and privately, he's known as one of the most plugged in people on human condition that there is today. And that's why I'm so honored that he is my guest on the podcast today. I have so much respect for Miles. He's a speaker. He's a writer. He's the CEO of Onsite and Extended Care Center for Emotional Trauma and Codependency. And Miles is also a featured guest expert on The Dr. Phil Show and has been featured on The Doctors, Annie's Intervention, and has been interviewed on Codependency, Emotional Wellness, and Family Dynamics on several national radio shows. I'm Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Miles and I had a great conversation about his story, masculinity, and even politics. So without any further ado, let's just dive straight into this conversation. Miles, welcome to the studio. Welcome to sounds good. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. We uh, man, we first met earlier this year, I guess, or late 2017. Uh, but I've been hearing your name from a number of friends for probably a few years now, mostly in association with their really positive experiences at Onsite. Maybe we could just start off with, can you tell me about what Onsite is? Because I feel like that's just a good spot to start.
1: Of course. Yeah, it's so we have a 75 bed retreat center, and we're onsite would be considered kind of an emotional wellness lifestyle brand, and we offer creative content. But what we're known for is uh, therapeutic and personal growth workshops. So we offer a whole series of workshops about 48 weeks out of the year on a variety of topics. There's one specifically called Living Center program that we're kind of known for that a lot of people. Probably our mutual yeah. friends. That's usually the first workshop people do. And is that the one that's like a week long? It's or? a week long, okay. kind of just a deep dive yeah. on your narrative and figure out what parts aren't working or any areas of your life that feel a little stuck. Yeah. And then there's a longer term residential program uh, for trauma, anxiety, depression. It's a little mm. bit more on the residential mental health side.
0: Yeah, so that's on site. Wow, and. How long have you been doing on site? Did you start on site or are you just, you facilitate it?
1: So, on site was around prior to me. It was, uh, got a really great lineage and heritage. It was a, l- a little bit longer of a name on site training and consulting. And they were doing clinical training uh, okay. for therapists with a model called experiential, which is basically making things three dimensional in a therapeutic context. Mm. A lot of therapies just talk therapy, kind of like we're doing. You're yeah. Speaking into the prefrontal and, a lot of pain is held in the limbic. And so curating and creating experiences is what we're known for and trying to make people's story come alive visually or kinesthetically so that we activate more parts of their brain and help them uh, rewrite whatever stuck.
0: That's fascinating.
1: Yeah. So it used to be um, a training consulting and they were doing some workshops, but nobody really knew about them. Uh, and I didn't know much about them, but I had a, a, a passion and a dream to create Something that made the door wider uh, with less stigma for people to lean in to their pain and do their own work. And what year was that? That was—I started looking at it in 2005. Wow. And then—and I was running a long-term residential program at that time, another place called The Ranch, and we were doing addiction and eating disorder treatment. Yeah but i wanted which I, have
0: bigger stigmas almost
1: it, for sure and what i learned from the crisis i would consider that kind of the crisis business the rehab business because people come to you and they're they're kind of at a bottom yeah is i loved it and i learned so much uh but it was pretty predictable you know people come you do your best you can with them and then you support them going back out uh, but i thought the rest of the world needs access to this kind of opportunity, whether the wheels are falling off or not. And yeah. that's what I wanted to create was something that uh, you did, that didn't have as much stigma and you didn't have to be at a bottom to come uh, take yeah. a look at your story. So I started playing with the idea of what what would that look like? And I thought it was going to be a seminar business initially. Hmm. And then, it's a long story, but ultimately, I came together with the people that were that had it at the time. They were looking for a succession plan. It was small, 2007. So, I, I bought it with a partner. And I, I thought I was going to rebrand it uh, because I didn't have a lot of uh, attachment to Onside, and yeah. the, the origin of it other than the, the lineage was great. Uh, but honestly, I couldn't afford to. We got 2007, 8, nine were tough. Yeah. Eight, eight those was, are not good years oh, to buy a business. Terrible time to buy a business. <laughs> And so it really, I didn't poke my head back up into the black until like 10. And mm-hmm. then once we got there, we've really just been fortunate. I think part of it wow. was just good programming and part of it was trending. You know, yeah. a lot of people were interested in doing it. Well, and work, the yeah.
0: stigma really has gone away largely. There's still a stigma there, but I started therapy maybe close to two years ago now when I moved to Nashville, uh, or at least a little bit after I got married. And if it wasn't for the people before me who had, who had basically just broken down that stigma for me, just saying, oh, I go to therapy, my wheels didn't fall off. I just, I wanted to grow. I wanted to understand myself better. You know, that was a game changer, just them kind of offering that encouragement and that personal experience. And and now you can do that through the internet. You know, I know so many people, I saw somebody today just tweet, uh, hey, just went to therapy for the first time today. And why did it take so long? You know, it's, things are kind of changing and that's exciting.
1: Really exciting. We've kind of been waiting on that for a long time hoping the world would begin to embrace therapy. And yeah. we could rebrand the idea of looking at your your pain as, that's not what's wrong with you, it's what's right with you. That you yeah. take a deeper look at your narrative.
0: That's so interesting. And that, in many ways, I was telling this before the show, kind of how the show got started and, and about how I did not know that we would be talking about so much pain on this podcast when we started. But It's been so interesting that the people that I most admire who I want to have conversations with on this show have a unique ability to look at the pain in their life and not freak out, not let it completely overwhelm them, not let it bring them to become cynical, uh, but to just see it for what it is and and just kind of grow through that. What kind of person's attracted to that? You know, is, is it anybody can be or is there a certain kind of person that's going after that?
1: Historically... It's mostly been positioned, just therapy or counseling in general, for people when they need it. Mm-hmm. And I think now people are starting to shift that. to It's not that you need it, it's that you deserve it. Ooh. And when people start embracing that, uh, it becomes a privilege and an opportunity versus an obstacle or a challenge. So I think now we're starting to see not just people who are stuck struggling or who'd experienced uh, adverse childhood experiences in some way. I mean, we all experience adversity at some point along the spectrum. Uh, and you have to unpack that because if you don't take a look at stress, it's gonna compound. And that's typically what therapy is. It's a way to offload stress.
0: Huh. That's so interesting. And so what kind of people are showing up on site? Like who who's the type of person you're seeing?
1: pretty much everybody across the spectrum. I mean, you, you, <laughs> we definitely have a sophisticated clinical model, but I usually don't like to talk through the lens of pathology because I think mm. that's part of the problem that created the stigma is over-pathologizing people's process and over-identifying with your pain. And what happens when, this happens to a lot of people that are in recovery, happens to people in faith too. People over-identify with their Christianity and they, they learn this new language, which is I speak Christian. Uh. And there's a whole other. Group of people out there that don't speak that. Yeah. And it turns into where it kind of excludes people unconsciously. And the same thing can happen in the recovery and therapy worlds where I've had people that are in recovery that come, meet, say, let's say they're in AA, they're in recovery yeah. for alcoholism, and they'll come to do a workshop because they never resolve the trauma. And the first thing we do is have to uh, figure out how we support them in learning that they're actually more than their recovery story. In other words, there is more to your identity than your pain. Interesting. Because people sometimes will lead out with, I'm, before they even know their name, it's like, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. It's like, well, hold on. I know that's part of
0: your story, but who else are you? And that's hard to get past too, because oh, that's so interesting to think about. Because it is an important part of somebody's story. It is probably a huge growing point. You know, it's probably the catalyst for change. How do you separate that, but still, still not ignore that pain?
1: The more you go into your story, the more self-awareness you get, the more self-awareness you get, the more you're able to do it with a little bit of grace, and it gets to where the pain doesn't go away, but you create a different relationship with the pain. Hmm. And when you're able to do that, I think you can dance into the narrative more. And the more that you do, you're able to separate it. And because even today, I think a lot of people would think... Not a lot of people, but uh, some people affiliate me with, obviously, the face of Onsite, So they assume I'm the head of an emotional healing treatment center. I must have my stuff together. (laughs) And some are surprised, the ones that know me aren't, to understand that I am human and I'm a mess like everybody else. But I have a pretty good relationship with my struggle and my pathology, and I'm constantly working on it. It's not working on me because I don't walk around and look at it through the lens of how could you, you idiot, get your stuff together? It's like, no, you're human. Of course you're going to be a
0: mess. That's so interesting. And maybe maybe that's kind of a nice segue to bringing it back a little bit further. And, you know, so before OnSite, you were working at uh, a different location. What were you doing before you even chose this whole path? You know, what kind of led you to this route of life? Because this is certainly a choice.
1: Well, it was a choice. It, it ultimately, it, it chose me. I just had to huh. embrace it. And decide that I was going to do it as a career. I was in the sports industry right out of graduate school. Really? Yeah, and I was we were doing kind of the media and business side of sports, uh, broadcasting and selling TV and radio for collegiate properties and fascinating. Yeah, and I I liked it, but it, in a sense, sports was a big identity thing for me. I grew up playing sports; really? and it was kind of all I knew. Where did you grow up? A little small town here in the south, about okay. an hour and a half. A town called Hohenwald. It sounds like Hohenwald, but it's not. Um, <laughs> But it's a great town and such amazing people. But there wasn't a lot to do there other yeah. than be an athlete and outdoorsman. That was kind of the my message of masculinity. We we did we did have some arts, but it wasn't a heavy artistic influence. And so uh, I didn't really get in touch with the rest of me until my early twenties when I had to. But so I get out of grad school, I get into the sports industry, and things are going really well professionally. But personally, I was drowning. I was in a career that I wasn't that happy with. It had me, a big part of my career was entertaining, and so I would have to entertain potential clients which kept you out all hours of the huh. night. And so I was, you know, just numbing out in a lot of unhealthy ways. And what I had on board and it had it for a while that I didn't recognize was depression. I didn't have a name for it, didn't know what to call yeah. it, but ultimately it got the best of me and it it never uh tripped me up Per se, professionally, uh, because I had I had also been educated on put a good face on and keep the walls up, but personally, I was miserable, and finally, the miserable part of uh, what was driving me personally caught up with me, and that right. So, long story short, I uh, I
0: stumbled through the process of asking for help, and what we don't have to make this short. What, oh, okay, what was like? What was that stumbling process like? Because that's not an easy thing to do.
1: And I don't want to take credit for it. There, there were people around me that noticed and spoke into me. My mom being one of them. Um, Can't hide anything from your mom. So you <laughs> hide anything from your mom, but uh, she certainly saw it. So I, would, I dropped weight and just was really in an unhealthy space. She spoke into me, encouraged me to get help. But the the hard part I'm talking about was one. Just the idea of surrender hmm. and putting my hands out and say I need help was a big feat. I think people underestimate. How hard that is and how powerful it is once it happens It's such a sacred thing But we're in a culture where we're conditioned to never do that That's the last thing you do at all costs And so it took a lot to do that And then once you do it, then you've got to navigate Where do I go to get it? Because the helping profession is like any other industry There's a wide array of talent um, And there's a whole bunch of people that probably or don't need to be doing it And y- you really get lucky if you find a great therapist right out of the gate Yeah. But nobody tells you that they just you think it's a one stop shop. They're all the same. Just pick up the phone, <laughs> and so I got online or picked up
0: the phone and and had a few false starts. Met with some people that I just didn't connect with. That's at all. That's so discouraging because you don't know any other. You don't know other options exist. So you're like, oh, this whole world of things sucks.
1: Yeah, almost didn't go back. Really? Yeah. How many
0: did you try before you almost think it quit? It was
1: three. It's been a long time. That's. I mean, about.
0: that's that's a lot that's more than most people I would say try. And and
1: looking back, I can't put it all on their skill set. I was, you know, struggling at the time. Well, and And, it's
0: an alignment thing, you know, they could be great for somebody else.
1: And then I finally came across kind of the right person at the right time who, uh, just set me up on a path once we connected, um, where the lights came back on. And I, I knew probably two weeks into that process that I just, I'd fell in love with change and what that looked like it was a whole new language and a whole new world that i'd never really embraced i think my my eq is screaming to to come out of the box and it just i had a lot of room to grow because i was starting at baseline i had no emotional language and didn't know anything about exploring feelings and what i was experiencing and so when i learned all that it was as if I had somebody taught me English or how to speak for the first time. And I loved it. I wow. was on fire. So I kind of knew two weeks in, I was like, my path is getting ready to change in a big way personally and professionally. That's amazing.
0: Wow. And and so, first of all, is that when you started confronting this maybe toxic masculinity that you'd grown up experiencing to some degree? Or, sorry, I don't I don't want to project the word toxic masculinity. You talked about the definition of masculinity. No, I, t- that, I think toxic's a okay. good fit.
1: I'd say unconsciously, yeah. That was probably when it started. I didn't know or didn't have the language for it till probably a decade later. It was honestly five years ago when huh. I started and I was well into the helping profession at that point. I'd already a second stop. On site was now my thing and I um that's when I really got in touch with all of me and started and reconciled some of the pain and rewrote some of the old messages of who I thought I was supposed to be as
0: a man. I feel like there is a shift that's happening right now among men i think men are becoming a little bit more okay turning inward and it seems like women have always been at least a few steps ahead uh culturally in the united states
1: they have and and they still are uh, <laughs> uh on sites numbers would show that but it is shifting because historically we had we women outpaced men significantly uh as our clientele who would come basically to a one week personal growth workshop interesting and now we're starting to see more men. So it's starting to get a little bit more
0: balanced, which is great. I think the door is definitely wider for men to step into it. That's good. That's really good. So you are like two weeks deep in therapy and you decide, hey, this is probably the path I'm going to go down. What kind of next steps do you take? Obviously, I would imagine you still keep on going to therapy. But what else is kind of going on behind the scenes?
1: Yeah, so I did I did mountains of my own work and had to explore at all angles uh, my process and what needed to be healed. And thankfully, I had a mentor early on, and I've shared this before, but I think it's an important part of the story, As I had a mentor early on who... When I went and presented my idea, and I'm not, turns out I'm not the first to do therapy and have that aha moment. Um, it happens all the time, even at onsite people. <laughs> they had this moment of clarity and they're like, I need to be doing this. Wow. How, to, how to do this. And I've learned to, whenever that happens, and it, all, it changes, maybe uh, 5% of the people who feel it immediately actually come back around and say, No, I'm serious. I want to be in this profession. And the rest, usually, it's kind of, you know, they're on the cloud a little. But I've never discouraged one person because I didn't, the first person I went to, I got encouragement instead of redirection. And it was a game changer because I expected almost as a brand new person in the process to go to a helping professional and say, here's my business plan for starting a program. He's like, slow down a little bit, buddy. <laughs> get, uh, you know, get back in your lane, do your work. I've seen people kind of shame people in that process so much. He did not do it. What wow. he did to me is he looked at me and he said, you know, I believe that, you have the right skill set to make an impact in the change business, the change profession. He said, but here's what I think you, you need to hear from my experience is that the people who make the, the longest lasting impact and create sustainable change, in other words, they're here, they stick around, are the people who get a Ph.D. in themselves. So if you want to do this, you're in the right place consider consider this, you know, deep therapeutic work, graduate school for you to stay into this business. It was, in a sense, it was a reframe. Yeah. Because he got me back into my story. But it was really gentle. It was gentle. It was like, okay, so the best prep work I can do to be in this path is to do my own work. Yeah. And I wish therapists today and pastors and ministers today would get that message because they don't usually get it until 15, 20 years into their career when they've face planted with burnout or addiction.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to think about, you know, you were obviously going down the path of self care, but if you're in any other profession, you can find your greatest strength by looking inward and understanding yourself better. I see people burn out all the time. It's horrible. It's so rough.
1: And I have. I've even, even with, I feel like pretty healthy self awareness on board, that doesn't exclude you. I okay. Mean, you can, especially if you're a, a driven passion junkie yeah. like me and people that we draw to on site. I've been at the top of my career even a few years ago and
0: and kind of crashed
1: with burnout as a head of a place that supports people with burnout
0: what does that look like then how do you how do you kind of reconcile that
1: thankfully we've got a culture there where we believe in everybody professionally we also believe there's humanness in professionals and so we have a messy culture we have a great culture but it's a messy culture because we we're okay with people leading with their mess and saying this is where I struggle. It gets hard when you're the, the head of that because I basically had to go into all the people who trust me, sit in front of them and say, hey, I'm not doing too well. I'm struggling relationally. I've been going too fast, too hard. I haven't really taken care of myself and I've got to step out to be able to take care of myself in order to preserve us going forward. I was terrified to do that even though I knew it was the right thing to do. Because you just got to think, will people trust you? Will they fall in? Will they align? Or are they going to jump ship? Yeah. And, and they didn't. I mean, my. That's amazing. I'm so lucky to have such an amazing team that I get to work with. But they actually stepped up. I learned a lot. They learned a lot because I stepped out for a little bit. Not not a real long time, but I stepped out long enough that people felt empowered to do their own thing. And it, 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 it was an interesting intervention or shift on the whole culture.
0: And so when you stepped away, what did that process look like then? What How did you start kind of working back towards coming back to on-site and, and recovering from that burnout?
1: I'm a big believer in doing intensive work when it comes to personal growth or therapeutic. I, I have a counselor that, that I do the 50-minute session with. I think that's important, too. But I have a learning disability, and... Leave me with just a, a quick look, and then back to something else. I've forgotten everything that I have <laughs> picked up. So I need to be untethered. That's a, honestly that's such a huge part of what we do at Onsite is untether people from their technology and their profession. That alone is incredibly healing. Interesting. And you underlay that with some pretty pretty good therapy. It's magical. But if you didn't even do that, two days into being untethered from technology is healing for the human brain. But that's the way I respond the best. Is that's I good. I need to jump in and do like four days, eight hour days of therapy. And, and almost like if you calculated out month, it'd probably be like a year's worth in a week. <laughs> yeah. And that's how my I respond well. So that's what I did. That's but amazing. I, I didn't do it at on site, although I do now do a program a year at on site, part of oh, a cool. leadership group that I've been doing for about a decade. I stepped out with an on site facilitator who I know but wasn't real close to, and we just did it at a private residence, and I did like a four- or five-day intensive and that's great. cleaned out the cobwebs.
0: Yeah, and you talking about unplugging reminds me of, I guess it was probably just about a year ago now, we were in the middle of working on the good newspaper, and I had just been going a million miles an hour with so many things, and I get this email from a friend who basically says, Hey man, you wanna go fishing for a week? And my natural inclination was like, No, I don't want to leave all this stuff I'm doing and take a week off uh to go fishing. And he's like, in the I, I, I basically said that back in the email and he responded by saying, Hey, there's gonna be he basically responded with all these things that also sound awful, like, uh, oh, there's gonna be no phones, you know, we can all take a break from work, it's in Montana, like all this stuff. But I ended up saying yes. He kind of talked me into it. And what was great was that one, it helped me realize that my job can kind of like, it can survive without me for a week. You know, it it, it was maybe a little bit of an ego check to be like, oh, I'm not as big of a deal as I think I am. Um, Second, that, just unplugging for a week. You're right. It totally changed my brain. It left me feeling refreshed and energized. It wasn't necessarily therapy, but in many ways, just the communal experience of being with some other people who are having the same experience was therapeutic. And I came back feeling energized and refreshed and like I had just taken a deep dive for a year of therapy. It was amazing.
1: Yeah, it's it's so important. And we just, I think we underestimate it and don't do it enough. Uh, what keeps a lot of us from doing it, I think, is when we overwork, we lose our identity in our personal life. It's usually because there's something about our personal life we're not happy with. And so I usually, people are dealing with burnout or working too much. Instead of saying, what do you love about your job? I say, what are you missing at home? That's good. And if you can explore that, it's, it's a, it can be a challenging process, but if you can explore it, then home gets to be driven by the same passion that work gets to be driven by, and that's where kind of organic balance comes from.
0: That's beautiful. I've never heard anybody describe it like that. Mm. That's so interesting. And then, so after you ask that question, how do you, what do you do when you ask that question and somebody doesn't know the answer if they don't necessarily have something that immediately comes to mind?
1: Well, if I were, and I don't do uh, the clinical work because I'm usually running it, I, I will do triage and some coaching. So if I were working with somebody, or let's just say it's a buddy, and we're trying to help uh, figure out what's going on, um, I would simply just get curious about and ask questions. Because like, ultimately... What work does for me, it fills up a part of a—I'm chasing a hole that I still have in in my soul that it's not near as big as it used to be. But there is, I do get some unconscious need met uh, by being in my profession, the helping profession. You can call that codependent. You can call that all this other stuff. And I've worked on all that stuff. But I think it's more dangerous when you don't know it. Now that I know it, I've kind of got peace with it. People are surprised when I tell them that. They say, think I need to <laughs> evolve beyond it. Uh, but I think everybody has that at some level. If you're in a helping profession or in ministry or even if you're just an entrepreneur that's driven to scale impact and do thing, good things socially, I feel like there's some need you're getting met. And so it's just trying to figure keep that in check. It's okay as long as I say, as long as you know it, but figure out
0: what you're chasing that you're not getting somewhere else. Either, it's that self-awareness. Yeah. That's fascinating. What is your ultimate hope that people can come out of? on-site, or even just, you know, anything regarding your work, like what's, what's your hope for people to leave with?
1: I think it'd be just greater self-awareness. I, I think when people uh, live in, in a space of understanding uh, where their story comes from, where some of the imprint happened, it might be giving them a message that may or may not be true. You can live in grace in a deeper way. And so hopefully I'd walk, I would hope people would be anchored in their worth because they're aware and they're living in grace. And I think when the world feels solid and grounded in who they are and who we are as individuals, and we're more awake to how people around us are responding, that's where you see big change happen. And I think there's a big deficit of it in our culture right now, politically and spiritually and even in our, in the psychology community too, there's really a, a lack of self-exploration and, and self-awareness.
0: You just used the phrase living in grace. Can you break down what that means a little bit more, how that can be a response or a follow-up to self-awareness?
1: I think we're culturally conditioned um, to look and feel a certain way in order to fit in because the culture moves so fast. And it, it's, it's planting all these seeds of division everywhere based on belief systems and who we are and what we look like in the color of our skin. That's been going on for a long time, but I still think there's still a big undertone of it. And grace for me is when uh, you can be yourself fully in a community of different hmm. and live wholly in that space without the hustle. It, there's an easiness to it. There's a solidness. And I know, I know grace has um, spiritual definitions and all, but for me, it's just really being having permission to be who you are and allowing other people to be who they
0: are. You're somebody who is ambitious and has started things. You've started on-site, and I know you've had some other entrepreneurial endeavors. And for me, I know, you know, once I have an idea up and running, because I'm very much the same way, my brain is already moving on to the next exciting idea of how I can, you know, do what I'm already doing better or how I can take my existing skills and abilities and try something different, What does that look like for you as OnSite has been doing? Well, you know, I would imagine you've got new ideas on things that you can take action on with your skills and expertise. What's that looking like?
1: Right now, one of the things I'm most excited about is uh, we're launching a podcast, myself and a dear friend, Ruthie Lindsay, which is a mutual friend.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine that almost everybody listening to this episode has heard Ruthie's episode on our podcast. It was one of our first and one of our most popular of all time. Be, Everybody loves Ruthie. It's
1: Ruthie. She's amazing. So, Ruthie and I have this unique relationship, and it's it's surprisingly somewhat new, but if you know Ruthie, that she doesn't do new relationships. <laughs> you become fast friends with her quickly, but we kind of have this yin and yang thing, and it's a kind of a brother-sister we're doing a podcast called Unspoken, and it's why saying the unsaid may be the hardest and most important thing we'll ever do. So it's just supporting people in speaking hard truth. I'm so Similar excited. Similar to some of what you've been able to do. You paved the way for people like us to, to come behind you, just having <laughs> you know, having a podcast with depth. Thank you. And we want to do the same thing with, and share some of our friends with the world. So we're probably a few weeks away from launching that and oh, so good, excited about good. it. good.
0: Man, I'm so pumped about that. And Ruthie's self-awareness and her story and something really beautiful about her is just the way that she uses that to connect with others. You know, she can really like we were in Boston together and we went out for drinks after an event that we were both at. And I like go to the bathroom and I come back and she's already heard this entire life story of our waiter. And just somehow she's able to connect with all these aspects of their life. And so I love that we're getting that just, you know, her just genuine life experience met with your expertise together in something.
1: It's a fun combo. So I'm super excited about that. I can't wait for you guys to hear some of the conversations we've had so far. And then I'm working on a book too that I'll I'll share more about later, but it's going to be Good. a fun year.
0: Oh, that's so fun. And what I love is that with both of those things you're just taking things that are really high level that, you know, somebody in your field would be really familiar with, but people outside of that field may not be. And you're able to just put new language on that and put, you know, put it in a helpful format where it can actually change people's lives and it's not stuck in a textbook.
1: Yes. And I don't want to diminish the the work and the credentialing in the education of psychiatrists, psychologists, yeah. therapists. I, I love them. I mean, I work with so many of them, but it's not their job Uh, to brand what they do so that it's digestible for our culture. Exactly. And that's what you're doing. That's what I want to do is more people need to speak up about their process and help take this conversation mainstream and out of psych hospitals and therapy rooms.
0: I think that's so important. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently too, is I've been operating mostly from my own personal experiences. And as I get a little bit further into this podcast or the newspaper or these other projects I'm working on, I'm finding myself turning to experts and trying to learn from them because I feel like, I mean, I'll always be learning from my own experience, but there's so much to be learned from people who are a million steps beyond what I'm capable of.
1: And I love what you're doing with the paper. One of the things you're doing, because you're actually reporting stories of redemption and grace and people who are doing good things in the world, which that's the story that doesn't get told. I think you're an early adopter like I am. That's going to eventually sell. It doesn't sell in the news cycle now because everybody thinks that you've got to have drama in in, uh, in a pain point and in a story for it to actually work. And to some level, people smarter than us study story. They're right, but there's also an element of of good in the world that people are hungry for. Yeah. And I think your paper is going to take
0: off. Thank you. Thank you. And the science really is interesting in that people are naturally more drawn to bad news, but the truth is it should never stop with that bad news. And I think it's important to know the heartbreaking things that are happening in the world, but— The cool thing is for every heartbreaking thing that happens in the world, there's somebody who's being affected by it, who has decided to take action to solve that problem, to end that pain for other people. And so we don't end the story until we've talked about that part of things.
1: Love that. So you're telling the rest of the story. Yeah. Beautiful.
0: You just got me thinking about a question I had and what do people do when they leave on site? You know, it's, they're coming away feeling changed and energized and excited, but they're going back to their normal life what do you send them out with like what's the call to action after you get back home
1: yeah hopefully we've we've shifted the paradigm for them internally uh, about two degrees instead of I think a lot of change initiatives want to completely rewrite people's story and we're not big on uh, a confrontational intervention on what people don't have going on well in their life it's more of change is an inside job. And if you can support, I think everybody's got every tool that they possibly need to create the change in their life if they have an experience and a safe way to process it. So we spend as much time on curating emotional safety in our environment as we do facilitating clinical modalities. Curating emotional safety gives people this opportunity to operate within this bubble of unconditional grace and love. Which doesn't exist out in our families and our relationships and in our world, but we can you can create that and to live in that bubble for a week, if it does anything, it just changes you at your core and you walk away more empathetic, hmm. more empathetic towards humanity and towards yourself. It all it doesn't always stick. You get back into life and you realize reality is going to hit again and the rest of the world doesn't operate that. But I love to tell people when they're there, I was like the the world may not feel like this to you, but you're going to begin to feel like this to the world. Hmm. And I think that's what you see is I love when people see people who come home from uh, an on-site type experience and say, I see something different in you. And that person doesn't go have to advertise, here are all the things I changed. It's just (laughs) that subtly people notice that there's been some kind of shift at their
0: core. What's going to happen to the United States or to the world when more and more people are having these types of experiences, when more and more people are becoming self-aware. Let's talk specifically the United States. What do you think will culturally change?
1: I can sit with people at this point in my life who I disagree with in a big way, whether it's their theology or their faith or their politics, or you could even take my industry. There's a thousand different ways to support people and change. And uh, we get hooked in our own dogma too, just like the faith-based communities do. I can sit with a lot of different viewpoints and and hold them all and be in good conversation with them and, and and honestly listen. So I guess I could say that if more empathy is on board and more self-awareness is on board in the United States as a culture, I think we will all listen to one another better and deeper.
0: As you were talking, I was kind of checking myself because my natural inclination in 2018 with the political state that we're in is almost to think that when people become more empathetic, they all share the same opinions on how the world should work. Because sometimes when you look out, you see one political party that seems more empathetic than another political party. But what I'm hearing from you is that you can be across the political spectrum to some degree um and people can be emotionally healthy and that just allows us to have better conversations with each other and to maybe find better solutions by talking with people we disagree with is that does that sound at all accurate
1: it does and i know we're talking at like 10,000 feet <laughs> it'd be just if we it'd be, it would be fun to drill down and look at it but i i could see where we could land on based on how a political party is branded, that they might care more about humanity. But empathy is a two-way street. It's not just how much you care about the world. It's how much you care about yourself. And so you'd say the other party's a little bit more self-indulgent. You could say that, but that's a portion of empathy too. One without the other creates a problem. And so it's right-sizing both and realize that we have to take care of ourselves in order to take care of other people. We can't give it all away and we can't Take it all, but empathy—I think universal empathy gets us—not all agreeing, but at least hearing different points of view. Because I would be considered, and I've—I've—I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, I've had—I um, have political aspirations. Maybe in ten or fifteen years, yeah. if things position themselves well, only because I'm—I'm I'm passionate about what I'm seeing that's not getting done, and I think uh, in politics. Vulnerability and empathy in leadership is missing. It's it's abstinent. I've yeah. never seen a debate where somebody said, "I don't know," you know, or said said you know what uh, that particular area that you're asking me about it's not my strong suit, but I'm going to surround myself. Here's what I'm doing about it. It's always a spin. It doesn't matter if you know it or not. You got to know something. So say whatever comes out of your mouth. And I think if any leader ever stood up and said, "I don't know" or "I struggle with this," the humanness of what we all know they have, I would trust them to the end of the earth. And it's not like I want to become president, but I think uh, Congress and Senate, a little bit of influence to support people in knowing what they don't know instead of standing firm in what they do know, whether they know it or not, could shift the whole paradigm.
0: Wow. First of all, that's so exciting. And I'm so excited to vote for you in 10 or 15 years. Thanks, man. Second of all, you've got the hair for it. So that's (laughs) great. Uh, But third of all, Like, I want to believe you, and and I think I do. Like, I see that for myself. I'm like, yeah, I would 100% trust a person who's willing to say, I don't know. But when I think about the presidential debates that happened, you know, during the 2016 election, I can't imagine one of the candidates, or let's pretend they're different candidates, a candidate in the way that our country is right now saying, I don't know, and then not getting just destroyed on, you know, cable news or uh, talk radio. How do you... What about all the people who aren't self-aware enough in the country to acknowledge that as something that's to be valued? It's
1: going to take a big shift. It's not like—you're exactly right. You would get crushed because certainty sells. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why there's megachurches on every corner. You, <laughs> cer- certainty sells, uh, and certainty sells in politics, but it's dangerous. It's like being a, uh, an iPhone that never gets an update and i think we as human beings have to be updated and constantly reprogrammed and be open hands up to what we think we know because our belief, if we get if we get so anchored in our belief systems that we lose perspective on everybody else's then that's when wars and everything else start and i think vulnerability sells too i think we've seen that i think one good example of it is my friend Brene Brown's work. You know, it's just, it's taken off in leadership circles right now that people don't even know about. I mean, the people she's consulting at a high level is remarkable and it's trickling down and she's not one that's going to stand on a platform and say, you're not going to believe who I just worked with, but she's working with them. And her book, people grabbed her book in mainstream culture, not just the helping profession. That book crossed all kinds of barriers, her TED Talk. So she's just one example because I, I give her credit a lot of time for bringing vulnerability up to the surface but it's getting trendy. It's popular. That's why people are going to therapy and coaching and counseling right now. And I think it will get that way in the media too.
0: Wow. So what do we do to bridge that gap then? What are you know, the stepping stones between what Brene Brown did and eventually having a presidential candidate who says, I don't know, and seeing the American public embrace that, I don't know?
1: I'd say practice it. That's the best way is to uh, mirror the behavior you wish to see. Uh, it would make no sense at all for a future Senate candidate to be sitting here talking on something that's going to live online for a long time about my <laughs> depression and anxiety. That makes no sense because you could shoot holes in that. I mean, if, if a candidate got a hold of that, I can see a cam- uh a commercial now saying this guy went, you know, and I'm very open about it and I'm okay about it. Guess what? The last three presidents, four presidents all had a lot of challenges too, mental health and other areas. Some of them talked about it. Some of them didn't. Sometimes we had to find out through the back door, but uh, I think we just do it. I'm taking the risk now to put all of me out there. Uh, and at some point I think the world's going to be ready to embrace it.
0: Man, I'm so excited. And this podcast is going to go viral in about yeah, 15 right. years. <laughs> I don't think that many people care yet about me, but thank you. <laughs> Man, oh, this is so exciting. I guess maybe now is just a good time to kind of wrap this up by, by saying for somebody who, you know, isn't necessarily in a place to take a week off, though, you know, they're probably hoping for it, waiting for it. If somebody just wants to go out and take action this week or this month uh, to grow in self-awareness where would you say that people should start? And maybe even, you know, what's something that people aren't necessarily already thinking about?
1: If you are just part of the worried well, which is all of us, uh, you don't have major trauma in your life or a lot going on, then be intentional about community. Be as intentional about community as you are about work. And community can look like you can be fishing with buddies. Um, it could be anything that supports you taking time for you is not arrogant, it's not narcissistic, it's not egotistical, it's important. So it could be meditation, it could be prayer, it could be church, it could be uh, therapy, it could be coaching, counseling. It comes in a lot of different forms, but just make sure you're doing something intentionally, contribute to who you are, where you've been, and who you're becoming. Speaking to the people out there that are in a lot of pain, and I know there's a lot of you, statistically it's one in four, that are dealing with something, depression and anxiety or uh, abuse at some point along the spectrum. I guess the most important thing for them is knowing that you're not alone. And this is not the last chapter of your story. We're seeing that happen too much now. I've seen people's stories end. Suicide's at an all-time high. And it uh, breaks my heart because I've seen so many people who have been at that place. I've seen so many people who've been standing on the edge of, of a canyon looking down to what would be the end of their story. And they're doing incredible now. One year later, five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later. I can't tell you the number of stories I've seen with people in darkness who are now embracing light. And so that's the story I would want or the message I would want to share if you're out there stuck struggling and in pain and struggling with mental health is speak up. It's 100 percent okay. It's admirable. It's your strength. And you will turn that into your superpower. What you don't know right now, if you're sitting in depression and anxiety, is you're sitting on the biggest opportunity that most people wish they'll, they'll have at some point. Because people now, when they call me and they're like, oh, man, I'm I'm losing this. This is falling apart. I just got exposed here. There's a little part of me that has to contain myself with an appropriate response because I'm kind of excited for them. As long as I know that they're going to get help in some way, and there's a lot of ways you can get help now. Online, there's anonymous support groups. There's all kinds of counseling and therapy. Not everybody can afford or or do an on-site experience. That's okay. Just do something. Put your hands out and you'll be surprised about how people are going to come around you. And you'll be surprised at what this part of your story is going to do to launch you forward in an amazing way.
0: Wow. Miles is such a cool guy. I admire his honesty and his transparency And after this conversation, I want to really lean into this idea that when you find authentic, non-performance-based, messy community that embraces all of you, not just the shiny good part, that is when you've made it home. Let's not forget that Miles kind of announced for the first time ever that he'll be running for public office in the future. And I'm just going to lay my cards on the table and tell you now that I will be voting for him. If you want to learn more about Miles and follow his important work, definitely find him on Twitter and Instagram at MilesAdcox. Adcox. And for sure, be on the lookout for his upcoming podcast release with our friend Ruthie Lindsay. It's called Unspoken, and I am counting down the days until that comes out. And lastly, check out Miles' work at Onsite at onsiteworkshops.com. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. If you enjoyed this conversation, you'd also love our conversation with photographer Jeremy Cowart, and world-traveling storyteller, B.C. Serna. You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes by searching Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good, 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 a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad McElsnavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Christy Karenbrock offers production support you can get lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at goodgoodgoodco. And remember, good news isn't dead. My team and I have set out to prove this by creating a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are shaping the world for the better. And we've got some really exciting news. Issue four is almost here. We just printed the brand new issue. We Instagrammed the whole thing and you can pre-order it today. Check it out and see what else we do at goodgoodgood at goodgoodgood.co. And with that, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and remember that maybe one of the most important things you can offer this world is getting a PhD in yourself. Sound good?